Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who podcast network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This is the end of the 1970s. It is December 1979. It is the first year where I can remember staying up for the New Year's Eve ball drop, although we were out at a restaurant, so we did not actually see the ball drop. Somebody who worked at the back kitchen of the restaurant went running through the dining room with his shirt off, wearing a New Year's 1980 sash around his uh, chest. This would clearly never, ever happen in today's day and age with food safety regulations and common sense, but that was the 70s for you. Quite a decade. And we wave goodbye to the 1970s on Doctor Who Literature this week with the December 1979 book, Doctor Who and the Rebos Operation. This week, I will be spending the weekend at L.I. Who, which is taking place on the eastern edge of Long Island, about 60 miles or so east of New York City on Saturday and Sunday, the 19th and 20th of November, 2022. A lot of just amazing guests from both the classic and the new series are going to be there, both in front of and behind the cameras. I look forward to bringing you a report and hopefully an interview or two, both on this podcast and over on Trap One in the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, at the convention, we have received news... The new Doctor Who companion for the Shooty Gatwa era has been cast, and her name is Millie Gibson. She's very, very young. She's 18 years old. If you add up the age of Shooty Gatwa and Millie Gibson, their combined age is younger than mine, which tells you something. There was a very charming interview segment that went up on the Doctor Who YouTube channel today. It is Shooty Gatwa interviewing Millie Gibson for about three minutes. You can find that on YouTube. I am not going to play the whole thing here. But for the historical record, I'll play you the first minute so you can get a sense of how excited I am for this new era of the show to drop sometime in 2023 or 2024. Hello! Shooty Gatwa here, the Doctor. And I am very excited because every Doctor needs their wonderful companion. And I would like to welcome mine to the TARDIS. Hello! My name is Millie Gibson and I'm going to play Ruby Sunday, the Doctor's companion in the new series of Doctor Who. Um, Millie, what are your earliest memories of Doctor Who? Well, um, I was brought up on the Tennant and Matt Smith era, it was mm-hmm. crossed between them two, so I always remember Amy Pond, mm. oh, and that sort of era anyway, but um, yeah, no, it was always something me and my dad watched and I just remember thinking there is nothing else like this programme and there still isn't. What do you know about the Doctor? The Doctor is um, really handsome and um, he's um, an alien with two hearts Mm. in human form. Uh What makes the Doctor's companion such a good role? 
Oh, well, they are the eyes mm. into your world, and they are the audience eyes to see what will happen in your universe. And I think throughout time, you realise that the Doctor needs the companion just as the companion needs the Doctor. <laughs> I've been saying for a while now that the beating heart of Doctor Who has always been radical young creatives in their 20s. That was certainly true in the 1960s when the show was made and remade by the likes of Verity Lambert and Waris Hussein and Michael Imason and Michael Ferguson. It is certainly true now with Shruti Gatwa and Millie Gibson flying the TARDIS. Could not be happier to have them aboard. Taking you back to the middle-aged male portion of this podcast, my guest this week is the one and only David Barsky. Always a good time when Barsky's in the house. David actually gave me a trivia fact this week that I was not aware of. I had said a week or so ago that there had only been two actors crossing over between Doctor Who and the original Twilight Zone, and I named them as Gene Marsh and Terence DeMarney. Well, that's certainly correct in as far as the two of them both had credits on Doctor Who and Twilight Zone in the 1960s. However, David points out that I am missing a third the Season 2 Twilight Zone episode starring Burgess Meredith, The Obsolete Man. That is the second most famous Twilight Zone episode starring Burgess Meredith as a librarian. Excellent, excellent episode. David points out that in the credits for that episode, Harold Innocent is described as playing, quote, man in crowd, end quote, Harold Innocent later, of course, became known as Gilbert M. in The Happiness Patrol in Doctor Who's 1988 season. So that makes three Doctor Who slash Twilight Zone crossover actors. If you know of any more that I have missed and that David Barsky has missed, reach out to me. Doctor Who Literature, drwholiterature at gmail.com, or you can send me a DM on Twitter if we are mutual follows. I am not aware of any more than those three, but of course, we will see what we will see. This week, David and I will talk about the Rebos operation. We'll also talk about famous internet memes, including those taken from the shows The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and American Chopper. David has a professional connection to American Chopper, which he'll tell us about. We also talk quite a bit about Harlan Ellison and Harlan Ellison's famous introduction to the pinnacle Doctor Who novelization reprints, talking about how much he loved the Philip Hinchcliffe era of the show. David is in the process of tracking down some surprising information about that Harlan Ellison introduction, and we will talk about it at length over the coming hour. You do not want to miss that. We have a new podcast that has joined the Doctor Who Direction Point Podcast Network, and that is Time Ram. I've listened to their episodes. They're um, in my subscription feed now. They had an episode with my friend John Blum, who was on this show twice. So definitely give them a listen. We will now play the new trailer for Time Ram as they join Direction Point. And after that, let's get to it. Hi. I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 30, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time Ram. 
putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. And once again, back in the house is my occasional co-producer, David Barsky. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I don't know about that title, though, man. Come on. I, I don't want to take any credit away from you. I, I appreciate what you did. I did very little to, to earn that credit. But hey, that's Hollywood, isn't it? <laughs> you got me a pretty significant guest, so that is uh, certainly more than I could have done on my own. So definitely owe you uh, certainly a debt of gratitude, man. So we're talking today about another book that you requested. And this is a book classic example of don't judge a book by its cover. This is the John Geary illustration for Rebos Operation. This is a dark, moody cover that does not at all reveal what the story is about. Well, I mean, there are candles in the story. Um, there so are. And there's also a rubber-faced monster, but... Yeah, it, w- w- it plays, I'd say, a minimal minimal part in the story uh so it is pretty much exaggerated on the cover or too 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 much emphasized i should say i'm just curious though which edition do you have because i see that you have the original multicolored target logo my copy has the no i do not actually monochrome no i have the monochrome oh you do okay yeah i think when i originally had this book i did have the multicolor though but i do have the monochrome uh, yeah, this must have been a late 1984 reprint, because I think, according to what I read on the uh, Facebook Doctor Who Target group, the switchover happened in late 1984, right around the time of the Warriors of the Deep novelization. Huh. I think the first time I noticed it was uh, um, Terminus was the first time I, on that book, was the first time I per- personally noticed when I was buying the books as they were coming out back then. Yeah, I started collecting in early 85, so at that point, the earliest books with the monochrome logo would have been on the shelf, but of course, most of what I was getting had the colored logo. I was disappointed when the colored logo went away, but fortunately, the multicolored logo is back now for the new series targets. Yeah, I remember saying, like, why would you Why would you do this? I mean, targets are colorful, and this is just a sequence of circles within each other. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a target. You know, it has to do with the Houston Astros. Remember in the seventies and eighties, the Houston Astros had those, they were called the tequila sunrise uniforms. And it was just a garish melange of red and orange and yellow stripes on the uniform tops. One of the best uniforms ever. But 1986 Astros make the playoffs NLCS against the Mets. They lose in an epic six-game series. Game six was on my birthday. Mm-hmm. And they are suddenly on a highly rated primetime national series for the first time in years. America gets a good look in 1986 at those 70s relic disco duds leftovers. Mm-hmm. And by 1987, the tequila sunrise stripes were gone forever from the Astros uniforms. So I think it was the same thing. Target said, wait a minute, it's not 1976 anymore. We don't have to have these garish colors on the cover. Must have been the same kind of marketing decision. Uh, you can go with that. If that's your headcanon. Why not? Uh, I, I'm not opposed to it at all. Uh, but I yeah, it's. I mean, the, the covers themselves are very colorful, so I, I don't understand the point. And, and they, 
and and they probably got even more colorful. At least they got better, you know, with uh, some of the later ones. Uh, they're more detailed. I'll have to admit this: the cover artist for this string of novels is not my favorite. It's it, it's more of like impressionist artwork, really, or freehand sketch, you know. Yeah, and it comes from the same illustrator who covered the last book that we did last month, Image of the Fendal. Right. And this is right around the time that Andrew Skilleter was working his way into the line, because Skilleter had done the book that came out directly before this one, Destiny of the Daleks. And again, I advisedly use the American pronunciation of Daleks rather than trying to affect the <laughs> British accent. But it's definitely night and day because Skilleter is working with absolute photorealism. And as you mm. say, this is more grainy. It's a little more off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I like it better than I did back in the day. I can appreciate it. But there's definitely more impression. I mean, you know, it's it, nothing's completely formed. Uh, you know, it's, it's a series of dots, much like you see in the Impressionist Masters. But um, whatever. It, it, it is what it is. His cover for the War Games is fantastic. Also, John Geary, to give him a positive shout-out. But I think this is probably one of the last times we're going to see him on a Target cover. Because this is the last book of the 1970s, speaking of the Houston Astros. So the very next book is going to be 1980. And that's going to be a whole different vibe. Sarah Jane's 1980 or the real 1980? <laughs> 1980, Barsky, if you want to get off. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're going to help us understand why you chose this book. And then we're going to play a game, and then we're going to go off topic for a little bit. So I was curious that this is one of the books that you asked for, because I, I can tell you that when I first got this book, probably around 12 years old, what this book said to me in terms of prose style and cover art is, you must be bored. So this is one of the Target books that I read the least, and it wasn't until much later in life that I came to appreciate its gifts. But this is kind of the antithetical book for 12-year-old me, because the cover is not very... Uh, captivating and the prose is dense and graphic and doesn't really match the tone of the tv story so i was curious that you grabbed this one if you want to help elucidate why well yeah easy enough um i uh i want i've never read the book before so i was hoping i'd enjoy the story more because this is one of my least favorite tom baker stories huh yeah, it's sacrilege, huh? Uh, but yeah, I have had a complicated relationship with this as televised story, mainly because, listen, uh, as I explained to you before, uh, I grew up with that initial syndicated package of Tom Baker's first three seasons and maybe three years worth of that. I can't remember exactly what date, but of course, I you know, I, by the time we got new stuff, I had the Peter Haining books. So I knew what was out there or, or what wasn't out there, what was lost in time. Uh, but I, uh, I was excited to hear when we were getting new stuff. And this was the first new serial that I saw outside of that initial package of Tom Baker. And I, I, I couldn't stand it for a lot of reasons for, first of all, uh, the very first scene, <clears throat> uh, well, it's part of the, the the overall reason. One of the overall reasons is it's completely studio bound, and you know, to me, you know, the melange of the you know and the terrible juxtaposition of the the of the, the, the history of the you know the studio bound and the the the, the studio uh, the footage that was filmed, whether on location or at, or at uh, you know at the, the larger studios, 
I, I, it was always part of Doctor Who for me, and uh, it felt claustrophobic. It felt like I was watching a Shakespearean production on television, as I've seen before. You make that sound like a bad thing, watching a Shakespearean production on television. I uh, listen. I the reason why I can make that you know comparison is because I did watch them myself, and I enjoyed them for what they were. But that's not what Doctor Who was for me. And, and, and I'm also, I was still in my period when I was young enough, I was really, really into Doctor Who for the monsters. And there's a crap monster in this one. <laughs> Just crap. Not to put too fine a point on it. Yes. Yeah. No. Uh, how dare uh, would I? Uh, never. Uh, uh, and, you know, and it's very talky, you know, you got your t- typical Holmesian double act, but actually you have a triumvirate of double acts in a lot of ways in this one. You know, with um, Garen and Unstoff, of course, and you know, then you have uh, Shalak and the Graf, and even the Doctor and Mon are are a sort of um, a double act in their own way in the bickering sense. You know, if you like to listen to two people fighting, and that's another big reason why I don't like this story. Romana is just intolerable to me on television. She is just way too combative, off the bat. So, a couple of points. I'll counter you. Number one, we have now used the word melange twice in the first eight minutes of this podcast. I think that sets a record. I can't think of any other podcast that would use the word melange twice in eight minutes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you, just, you just said it two more times, though. Well, I'm using it now in a descriptive sense, but oh, we okay. used it in the wild twice in the first eight minutes. So unless Terry Gross has some really uh, you know, dense literary author on fresh air, I can't imagine too many other shows are going to use that word. Did I do that? Did I, did I was the one who used it twice? I used it first, talking oh, about okay. the Houston Astros tequila sunrise oh. uniforms, and then you used it again, talking about studio versus film. It's, uh, it's contagious. It is. So I grew up reading the Lockhorns, and I grew up with parents who got divorced by the time I was uh, just cycling around to the Colin Baker stories at age 12. So bickering was in my wheelhouse. Uh, I think the doctor and Romana's bickering is entertaining to a point. Now, when I got to Rec Arts in the early 90s, Mary Tam was not in vogue. If you were to go back deep into the archives and look at my posts talking about Mary Tam in the early 90s, I was pretty much piling on the bad wagon of posters who were criticizing her acting style, which in this story is pretty darn wooden. She appears to be reading from cue cards much of the time. Of course, Mm. she wasn't. That is very unfair to Mary Tam. I think as the season goes on, she and Tom Baker hit a perfect stride. They are finishing each other's sentences. They have a very good, I want to say, I'm trying to think of an analogy a comedic bickering couple in the movies. I don't know if Nick and Nora is the, is the, is the right analogy, but by the time you get to Armageddon factor, I love watching the two of them. This story is not her best introduction. No. I mean, in, 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 in Holmes, what is this? His third companion introduction uh, that he's written. Yeah. He, he introduced Liz Shaw. He introduced Joe. He introduced Sarah Jane. He's introduced everybody, but Leela at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's his fourth. Forgot about Liz. Uh, but, Absolutely. Uh, the thing of it is, yeah, okay, she's different, but she wasn't what a Doctor Who companion was to me at the time, at least. You know, I like I said, those first three seasons, I had uh, Sarah, I had Harry, and I had uh, Leela. And this woman comes on, and she's like, she's hot, and she knows it. And, and let's just face it, I mean, Romana, too, to me, was much more likable. 
she was cuter and not like sexy hot. Look, look, look at um, I was always more of a Marianne than a ginger guy. Let's just say that. Yeah, I again, Mary, uh, Mary Tam. I've come to appreciate her gifts. Lala Ward is my Romana, and that was the default view in Phantom for a long time, especially coming from the Rec Arts generation. Mary Tam is getting her due now and much deserved. But again, I didn't appreciate her in this story when I first saw it. I want to say now that I'm a little older, not necessarily wiser, and certainly not any more mature, as the tenor of this conversation will prove. But I think Rebos is one of the great stories, because while it's not traditional Doctor Who, while the monster is garbage, and while there's really only one single strand of the plot, it's a heist caper and that's it. I think the dialogue is hilarious. The Scringe Stone scene is my comfort scene. I can watch that over and over again. When the Doctor and Garon are locked up in Part 3 and they're trading war stories about various con jobs, and Romana goes, we need to get out of here. And the Doctor goes, listen, when you've been locked up as many times as I have, this is much more fun. That's just great Doctor Who for me. It's a very funny... Paul Seed as the Graf is one of the great villains the guy who plays Sherlock is a terrific double act to him and in fact even Prentice Hancock who was uh, you know an annoying character in so many stories this is Prentice Hancock's best doctor who adding because well was- I mean listen he- let, let's let's face it though he had to get out of the way of Paul Seed in this one you, you know, you know <laughs> yeah generally he's the guy chewing the scenery <laughs> yes yes so, look I'll give you that I mean yes there's some good dialogue but just people talking in rooms is not what Doctor Who was for me and I honestly, the most enjoyable thing, you know, you hit, you, you sort of hit this, but um, it's the performances. Absolutely. The performance Paul Seed is, is, is amazing. I mean, he's doing pure pantomime and I love every minute of, it. I can't, I can't take my eyes off him. And, you know, even, you know, Nigel Plaskett, you know, oh, yeah. you're absolutely right. That scringe stone thing is amazing. I'll be, I'll be playing the audio from that a little bit later in the recording for everyone who wants to hear it. It will be coming up during my script at the end of the show. Yeah. And I, honestly, like I said, it's the performances. But again, barring our two main characters that we're going to see for the rest of the season, I think Tom Baker's uh, first couple of scenes, he's um, – he. I think he – gosh, I, I, I think he's like going too fast, especially with uh, the uh, the Guardian. I, I think he's way, way just mailing his lines and, and saying them too fast and not giving the proper doctor emotion. Sure, it's a weird thing and it's a terrible set, but uh, he just seems off on that. Maybe it's the big hole from Paul Seed's dog on his face. I don't know that he was upset about. Yeah, I think he already had the big uh, bite on his face at that point. But this yeah. is the Graham Williams era. Graham Williams grew into his role as producer, but this is his second season, and there are still some rough spots around the edges. Much better than season 15, but Graham Williams never really had control over Tom Baker in studio the way that the earlier and later production teams would. So you're not getting Tom Baker. This is the era of the show when he spends 15% of each TARDIS scene fondling the console. So you're not getting your best Tom Baker here. No, you're right. But I mean, there he's got some great moments in this 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 uh, season, and he's and, and and through the Graham Williams era. So there was a little bit more to it. I can see that. But I, whatever the case is happening behind the scenes, it just still isn't there on, on the screen for me. Ultimately, he does great work when he's paired opposite Ian Cuthbertson, who plays 
uh, gown. And when, yeah. That was right around the time that Gorillas in the Mist came out in the theaters and then on HBO. So when I watched Gorillas in the Mist, I was excited to see Ian Cuthbertson with a big role in the early part of the movie. So I already recognized him from Rebo's operation. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember that. I, I don't, I think I saw that a long time ago, but uh, yeah, he's, uh, their performances are outstanding. And I, I, again, that's what makes it for me. Despite that, the, the other thing is, you're right, there's only one simple plot and it really doesn't make sense at all. It, 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 the, the whole, the whole impetus of, of, of the caper, he wants to sell the planet to the graph, right? Right. And it's all based on tricking him into Scringstone is, 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 is available on Scringstone. Jethric is, is available on the planet, right? But if it's so valuable, as they keep saying throughout the show, how, how could power fleets and, 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 and the graph would not have to train people on this planet to fight for him. He could buy soldiers. He could buy a fleet. If it was worth that much, why would they have to do this caper at all? Why doesn't he just sell it and, and relax and not be a thief? It's the Zach Hampel school of catching baseballs. You know who Zach Hampel is? No, but I was, I was honestly, I was just, I was just thinking it was more aligned with the Anthony Ainley master plan. You know, it's just like, what the hell are they doing here? It's just so convoluted. Zach Hampel is a very young baseball fan who early on figured out the secret to sitting in whatever seat a wrecking, a record breaking home run ball is going to land in. He has caught tens of thousands of baseballs. He caught one of Barry Bonds record breakers. You could catch one of those balls, sell it and be set for life. He chooses to catch them all. He always seems to know where the ball is going to land, and he's caught, again, tens of thousands of baseballs. So applying that, again, that's the second baseball analogy in 20 minutes. I apologize to my UK-based listeners, which is most of you. But you have this great, enormous lump of Jethric, right? Why sell it once when you can sell it 40 times? That's Garen's approach. Gee, that, well, listen, that occurred to me. But still, it's like, Obviously, the the graph doesn't have enough money to buy this one piece of Jethric, but he's got enough money to purchase the planet. So it's definitely more valuable. We know that. So it, it could be infinitely more valuable than the money he's going to get off the graph and decay for this caper. And how many? And they even say that this is going to be their biggest and their last gig. This is going to be the last caper they pull. So why don't you just freaking retire with this thing instead of risking your life by getting eaten by a, a crappy monster or, <laughs> or, or, or executed by, you know, a despot? But this is the genius of the story because you have Unstoff, who's the naive young trainee. He then tries to do a side hustle and he tries to sell a map to the Jethric on top of the Jethric and the planet. That's just layers of layers of, of, of layers upon layers of comedy. Well, no. Listen, it's all there. Like, I, I, I get it. There's some funny stuff, and and I, I love their relationship. But eh, I wish I was more versed, well versed in Shakespeare, because I'm sure this, like, he lifted it right from one of these Shakespeare du- double acts. I, I'm, I, I, it is also the only Doctor Who story ever in 69 years to feature the word suzerainty. Jesus, I didn't even recognize that. Where was that? It's when Paul Seed is reading the real estate contract for the purchase of Reboss. The way that he pronounces that word will give you life if you watch the story again. It's in part one or part two. Oh, God. Yeah, that's, I think that is in part one when, when he uh, 
God, I, I don't know. I just, I was probably more transfixed by the spit landing on the lens during that. Scene. <laughs> Paul Seed, lest we forget, is the actor who then became a director and directed all three seasons of the UK version of House of Cards. You don't get House of Cards unless you have Rebo's operation first. A little bit of Ian Richardson going on in his performance, maybe. Well, I've never seen either version of House of Cards, so I, wow. sure. I don't even care about that. But I, like I said, though, Paul Seed is my favorite part of this story. On that, we can certainly agree. So what we'll do now is play a game. And I should have done this much earlier in the recording because some of the answers are already obvious. Wait, are we not going to talk about the book? We are, of course. We'll get to the book eventually. We always oh, do. But <laughs> I'll play the game you've been now. on this show before. You've played all my games. You must know that everything stops for games, man. Oh, all right. I thought we played those games at the end, but okay, fine. In this particular case, this is a game that I like to play earlier in the recording, and it'll become obvious in a minute. So we've already played Guess That Cliffhanger. We've already played 20 Questions. We are now going to play Listener Limerick Challenge. I've written out three limericks all based on Rebo's operation. Oh, boy. One of them is already pretty obvious because we've talked about it at length. The other two might not be so much. So I'm going to read you out a limerick. You're going to have to guess the missing word, the last word. And I know that you are a poetry dude because every time I email you, I have to enter in an email login name that is based upon the ancient art of haiku. Well, yeah, is the original haiku master, the man who basically um, invented it. And some say uh, it died with him and didn't exist after him, uh, Matsuo Basho. I learned about Basho from reading You Only Live Twice, where when James Bond is undercover and trying to pass as a native Japanese citizen, he is forced to endure a poetry writing session where he has to write a haiku. And, of course, he gets it wrong and totally messes up the 575 scheme. Well, you know, it's funny, uh, people outside, of, oh, I'm going to go with one of major, major, uh, <laughs> if you're not careful, major, major tangent here, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's much more to it than 575. Um, unfortunately, most people outside of Japan don't know that and just write anything with 575. The History of Literature podcast, which I have not necessarily stolen, but definitely borrowed heavily in creating this podcast, did an episode on Basho recently. And again, it's not five, seven, five syllables. It has to do more with sounds. And you, as you say, it is a lot more complex than just counting to five, seven, five. But Ian Fleming's James Bond couldn't even count to five, seven, five properly. So he's oh. much further behind the curve than perhaps we are. Oh, certain, certain things, I guess, yeah. So are you ready for the Listener Limerick Challenge? I will say yes. Okay, here's our first one. The graph vindicate is no thin foe. You can tell that the doctor will win, though. In the main village square, the graph's plans are laid bare. He's brought down by the heretic. Binro. Yes, Binro. Very good. I well, knew I, that I, you would get this. Cad- but did I get the did I get the cadence right? I didn't get the cadence right, but again, we're doing <laughs> this more for fun than for the actual art of it. Okay. All right. Second, the doctor's emotions are dead since Leela ran off with Andred. He's way too resistant to his new assistant. Will he call her Ramana or? Fred. Yes. Again, one of the great 
lines in episode one. Either I call you Romana or I call you Fred. Mary Tam <laughs> calls his bluff. Okay, call me Fred. And he goes, fine, Romana. Yeah. I, I, Martyr added something a little bit weird in, in, in how he described what her original name sounded like. Oh, the, uh, the Swedish railway station? No, he actually says Siamese ra- railway station. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess is fair enough. Uh, that uh, definitely could stand to be, uh, updated in this day and age with the word Siamese long, long, long out of print. Yeah. You know, but the British, they, they still do things like that. Don't they? Yeah. I had the same issue when I was covering, uh, talons of Wang Chiang on this podcast. Mm. Uh, the other line on page 12, uh, she introduces herself with her full name and the doctor goes, well, my dear, I'm sorry, but I really cannot, I really cannot be held responsible for everything. The doctor replied, shaking his head sympathetically. <laughs> no, that's, that's some good stuff. Absolutely. So we have one more limerick to get to. Uh, again, this is probably my weakest one, but uh, again, the story doesn't give me a whole lot to work with. It gives you a lot of names that don't rhyme very well. Well, just be happy I'm not grading you on this. <laughs> the Shrivenzals will bring you death quick. If you fight them, they'll rob you of breath quick. These big, ugly ghouls are guarding the jewels, including a huge lump of Jethrick, which is why I wanted to play this game earlier, because we've already used the word Jethrick in this podcast more than the word melange. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed that, actually, because I got them all right. (laughs) You did. You went three for three. And I will say that Mrs. Doctor Who novels are sitting across the table from me, giving me deadly glares. I don't think these uh, limericks are going over very well. (laughs) Hey, you're going to improve in time. I know you will. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yes. Eventually, the next time that you're on the show, I will try to uh, raise my limericks from an F to a D. Yeah, I think I got six months in my next appearance, so we'll see what happens. All right. Give me plenty of time to go into training. I'll try and be better at limericks than uh, Ian Fleming's James Bond is at writing uh, haiku. <laughs> so let's go off on another tangent before we come back to the book. So you and I have talked at length about the novelizations, both on the show and offline. We have talked about not only talking about the Pinnacle books, mm-hmm. and we've talked quite a bit about the Harlan Ellison introduction to the Pinnacle books, which I would like to talk more about on this show, but I'm waiting for the right time. You, as my erstwhile producer, are trying to chase down a story for me. Are you at liberty to disclose what you can tell me about Harlan Ellison's Doctor Who introduction. Yeah, I mean, I remember being fascinated. The the, the Pinnacle books were the first I've ever read. I, I, I Like I said, I, I owned all 10 of them, read them before I even knew there were other incarnations outside of Tom Baker. Uh, so, I, in fact, I learned the word incarnation uh, <laughs> by, <laughs> by reading the preface to that book that little said, this is a novel of the fourth incarnation of Doctor Who or whatever it was. And, you know, and I remember first time I ever heard of Harlan and reading that it was, I remember what crazy prose it was. And the fact that he really destroyed Star Trek in that calling it, you know, it'll turn your brain to Perea of bat guano. I didn't even know what bat guano was at the time. Yes. I also learned bat guano from that Harlan Ellison introduction. That's right. Yeah. So I was fascinated by it. And of course I had seen, City on the Edge of Forever, before I'd ever watched Doctor Who. I just didn't know writers or anything back then, so it didn't register. 
because I actually crowdfunded uh, a series of books uh, that have that have since come out uh, that uh, were uh, four volumes that had uh, Harlan's miscellaneous writings uh, in them. And I was surprised. I just uh, opened one up and the Doctor Who introduction was in there. I, for some reason, I don't know why I was surprised. I just never thought it would be in there. I wasn't thinking in those terms. And I reread it for the first time in maybe 20 years uh, when I got that book. I think it was uh, last year, two years ago. I don't remember when it was finally published. So anyways, I've been crowdfunding um, a lot that um, the the editor executor of Harlan's estate has uh, been doing, and he's also doing uh, a lot of books and editing some books and behind the scenes books of another favorite franchise of mine, Babylon 5. And so I reached out to him because, you know, I'm maybe he's come across some uh, some other versions uh, with maybe Harlan because Harlan saved everything. Harlan had files and files and files of everything. So maybe he'd come across because he practically lives in Harlan's house, going through his stuff, finding different versions of stuff. Maybe he found a crossed out version of the original Doctor Who pinnacle book in, intro. Who knows? Shot in the dark. So I sent him an email and he got back to me and he said, it's an interesting story. So I haven't gotten much more than that. I'm sure that, uh, um, he will reveal it one day. Uh, he's got a standing in, in invite to come on this show. Uh, he And he knows Doctor Who. He's a huge fan. He's been to Gallifrey One. Uh, so, um, you know, hopefully a lot of people won't bug him after I, <laughs> I mentioned this. But, uh, you know, whatever the case, uh, yeah, I don't know him at all. I have not met him. We have some mutual friends, of course. And most of them are in the Doctor Who circles. All right. I'm very much looking forward to seeing if you can get more information I will say that I was raised in a Harlan Ellison house and I was shown Demon with a Glass Hand, one of his Outer Limits episodes, probably when I was nine or ten years old. Yeah. Um, of course, again, age nine or ten, you're not really curating writers' names. So mm. I might not have remembered the name Harlan Ellison more than a day or two after watching it, but I know that I was shown that episode with the preface from my dad that it was a very important sci-fi writer who had also done City on the Edge of Forever. And I was already being ushered into Star Trek fandom right at around the same time. Yeah. So I own, and I say this as if it's an achievement, anybody can buy it. I have the box set of the 1985 CBS Twilight Zone revival. That would have premiered when I was in seventh grade, 11 going on 12. And I watched that, I think it was on Friday nights, every Friday night for a couple of years until it, went off the air and then came back as a poorly run syndicated version for another season. It was not, it's not the best version of twilight zone, but there's some really good stories in there. Many of which are based on classic sci-fi short stories as the original twilight zone had several episodes based on classic sci-fi short stories. Harlan Ellison was script editor. I think for the first half season, he contributes three or four audio commentary tracks to the DVD release which is the main reason that I bought it. So there were a few stories that he scripted for TV. And then mm -hmm. he tried to do, they did a Christmas episode for Christmas 1985. And it was three Christmas based Twilight Zone episodes. There was a remake of the Rod Serling Night of the Meek. The Art Carney Drunken Santa Claus story it was remade with Richard Mulligan pre-Empty Nest. Oh, wow. I, actually, that was the very first half-hour Twilight Zone I ever saw. It was Night of the Meek. Wow. 
Yeah. And then there was supposed to be a short, like a five or ten minute segment starring Ed Asner as this absolute bitter crypto fascist American racist who was trying to scare the kids by talking about this evil version of Santa Claus who went after naughty children. And of course you can predict what happens to Ed Asner's character at the end of the script. Um, CBS said, no, you are not allowed to air this story. So they vetoed it. And at the very last minute, the producers had to do a very short, fluffy 10 minute piece about, Pam Dauber is a magical secretary, which is a very cute segment, but it's not what we should have had. It's not what we could have had. And somewhere on the audio commentaries, Harlan is talking about CBS wouldn't let me make that story with Ed Asner because they were afraid of offending fascists. And that's just, you know, (laughs) typical blunt Harlan speak. When you read the pinnacle introduction and you listen to him on the audio commentary, there is no mistaking that it is his voice. He is blunt he is funny. He is yep. witty. You are both shaking your head. How can a guy say that and nodding your head vigorously in agreement at the same time? I mean, I, I was just curious. I mean, I had to know, especially since it was published in this, uh, it was republished in this book that I have collecting all of his inter- introductions to various books. And which books are those of Harlan's, which contain his introductions for anybody who might want to purchase those? Yeah, I don't know how available they are. I, I crowdfunded these. Uh, let me see. And Barsky is off camera, but he will return. I'm right here. Uh, you know, there's a set of four books. Uh, you know, the one with all of his introductions collected is called This Book Needs No Introduction by Harlan Ellison, mainly because it's a set of, oh, I don't know, uh, quite a few introductions by Harlan Ellison from various books. Uh, another one's called Dimensions of Harlan Ellison. It's got all kinds of weird stuff uh, from different uh, fanzines he wrote for, little cartoons he wrote, a bunch of blurbs. And Harlan Ellison Treatment is, is a cool one. Uh, it's got all his treatments for, uh, not all of them, but a good selection of treatments from uh, various TV shows he pitched and things like that back in the day. So, uh Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, and I crowdfunded that a couple of years back. It took a while to come out, you know, because, you know, it's hard work editing stuff and going through, you know, a deceased person's life's work. Uh, but they're, they were well worth it. Well worth it. And I continue to do so. Um, as I said, the uh, same editor does stuff for Babylon 5. And I'm a huge fan of that show. And I've, I've got like, I've, I have every stupid book that the Babylon 5 books have come out. They, 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 they have come out with volumes of just, uh, uh, Straczynski's uh, uh, online interactions with fans and questions that he answers. There's like five volumes of that. And I bought all those books. I mean, they republished them in book form. I would go through the Lurker's Guide, and this is back when the internet was text only in the mid-90s, but JMS oh, yeah. contributed quite a bit to the Lurker's Guide. They would do one post for every episode, and they would have all of his quotes from whatever Rec Arts group was discussing B5 that JMS was a member of. So that is a profoundly deep amount of material. Oh, the Lurker's Guide, if you were to take all that, would probably be five books in and of itself. Yeah, five yeah. Five hefty doorstop books. Yeah. No, it's it's. I think that's part of what what we have here. Um, I'll have to look that up. Uh, they're across the other side of my library. But, uh, yeah, this, they, they made an industry. They have all the scripts ever of all the Babylon 5 episodes published in like a, uh, what was it, a 20-volume series or something like that. Um, uh, amazing set. They do a great job, absolutely great job of, of editing this work and, and, and publishing this stuff. Um, you know, and if you're a nerd who collects all the stuff like I do, 
concerning behind the scenes, uh, you know, volumes behind the scenes. I, I, I have to get all of them. <laughs> I just do. It's my problem. So talking about two of the Harlan books that you mentioned, those are both available via third-party used sellers. Mm-hmm. I am linking through Amazon, but you can probably find them in any other book site if you're not an Amazon person. So the This Book Needs No Introduction book is available through Amazon at a very reasonable price. Oh, good. I'm glad they're still around. It says there's only two copies left, but I'll be ordering one of them myself. So uh, get to that quickly if you're listening to this uh, after the day that I record it, which you certainly are. And uh, they do sell them on the Harlan Ellison website directly as well. I mean, to cut out the middleman, I'd prefer that people go there, of course, Ah. but that's just me. Yes, I was just doing a quick Google search, and that was the first hit. But you can find it through Harlan's website. I will link to that in my show notes. Yeah, if they're still available there, I assume they are. But you, yeah, so that might be the third party they're getting from. I honestly, I, I shame on me. I, I don't, I didn't know the run, the extent of the run of the publication, how many they printed. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a while, and these things kind of go quick because I know they sold out of some of other works. Um, um, he has a, a, a series called brain movies and most of those have sold out. I believe I can't remember, which has all kinds of, um, film stuff from Harlan and television stuff. And the other book that you mentioned, the Ellison treatment that is available right now through a third party vendor on Amazon, but it is currently going for $150, which is almost as much as I paid for the Richard Marson JNT book which is the single most that I've ever spent on a book ever. Although the Richard Marson book is absolutely worth every penny that I paid for it, including shipping. If the Ellison treatment is available through Harlan's website, it's hopefully a a much more reasonable price than 150 bucks. Uh, Do do you have the reprint of the the Marston book? Because I I think it came out, I have the original, but I, I think they redid it. The second, the second edition was a hardcover edition through a different publisher. That's the one that I have. Then another reprint came out after that. Was it, it was revised, correct? Yeah, the second one, the, the, the second edition that I have, the hardcover one, is revised. But the original was going for like the original hard, the original paperback with the neon tube logo was going for like a thousand dollars, and I, I can't spend a thousand dollars on a book. I think I have that. I guess that's the one I got. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know how much they revised it. I've been, I should probably get the new one, but I can't believe I haven't yet. But uh, I just found it horribly salacious. It was a hair hair raising read. Uh, no stone is left unturned. Yeah, yeah, and you know, again, it's 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 weird. It's rather straightforward, right? You know, uh, if 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 you will, I, I, there's not a lot of uh, um, opinion at all it's just sort of a selection of people's testimonies about the guy which is is that a book i don't know there is a narrative and the author does feature as a character in that narrative because he had some encounters with jnt and gary downey which Mm -hmm. are very difficult to read very difficult to read yeah, no, exactly. I remember, as I said, salacious, um, um, and that's what I unfortunately took from it. I read it cover to cover uh, years ago, um, so I guess it kept me riveted. <laughs> At the same time, it is a very sympathetic portrait. It talks about JNT's decline, how he alienated a lot of people close to him, and mm-hmm. you, know, you know, died in a very unfortunate way of, of a prolonged, almost self-inflicted illness. Oh. Alcoholism is a terrible disease, and it got JNT when he was very, very young. Um, uh, so it's not a philippic. It doesn't hate 
JNT. It just presents all of his facets, the good and the bad, and mm-hmm. lets you make up your own mind which outweighs which. So I, I think Morrison is giving him every benefit of the doubt, even though he has very negative first-hand encounters with JNT and JNT's partner. Yeah, I, I was just saying, I wasn't I wasn't exactly saying uh, the bent of the book, but just some of the stories detailed there were rather salacious. All right, so we have uh, talked about the Rebos operation on television. We yes. have talked about Harlan Ellison. We have unveiled some poetry. We've uh, critiqued Jason's poetry writing skills on camera. What we have not talked about yet is the novelization, the Ian Martyr adaptation, which you had not read before. Yes. So turning back to the book for the last segment of this recording, now that you've had a chance to read the book for the first time and you're comparing Ian Martyr's graphic novel, and I use the (laughs) word graphic in the adjective sense rather than the literal graphic novel sense, how does it compare to the TV story? How does it compare to Martyr's other books? How does it compare to all the other novelizations that you have read? Well, positively speaking, I, I will say that I do enjoy a beefed up um, uh, descriptive prose. And he's got some good sections in this um, in this book, uh, especially towards the end with uh, Unstoff going through the catacombs. I, I think he does some good job good job with that uh but you know it's hard to capture a tone because i think you derided that earlier in this podcast the uh martyr's tone doesn't quite capture the joviality i guess of of what happens on screen but again that's i think that's a lot to the goes into the performances he does try his hand at comedy and adding his own which i i think falls a little bit flat there's there's some good lines but i i to me when he what he does beef out with, with characters, he does with the, the Doctor and Romana, and he adds more bickering. And that was one of my least favorite things, as I said. And it really annoyed me that he did that. He added even more bickering, and he even has you know uh, Romana bickering at canine towards the end. Huh? Yeah, and I just and it, there's more. There's literally more scenes of it, and and I just and I just didn't like it. I didn't like that at all. And you know some of the other weird choices he makes, like he names the the uh, the key, the cord of the key, the local muter or what, locator muter or whatever. <laughs> so that I'll come to his defense briefly. That is not Ian Martyr. That was what the thing was originally called in the very first draft of the Key to Time script. Ah. And I get that from the most recent version of Key to Time that is on DVD. Uh, I don't remember which set, but in the version of the production notes that I saw for Rebo's operation on DVD, that was the scripted name until late in the day. I guess they realized it was a bad idea to have characters say locator muter 17 times on camera. So it was changed to Tracer after oh. writing, but the version of the script that Martyr was working from was before it was changed to Tracer. So that is yeah. not an Ian Martyr invention. That is just the material he was given. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but again, some of the characterizations, like the, like I said, the, I didn't like the bickering, but what he does with the doctor is really curious too. Uh, I mean, twice, I think he has him looking murderously at Romana. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> murderously? Really? I mean, is that, is that, I mean, I know he begrudges the fact that he was paired up with the woman, but at the same time, my gosh. And why is he using an ear trumpet? Why does he have the doctor have an 
listening in. I mean, even as a device to, to hear what's going on uh, with the other characters when he's not in the room, it's really a clunky way to portray. I mean, you don't have to tell that. You don't have to say that kind of thing narratively. We understand that doctor's in another room and he doesn't have to be in on it. And this information, he doesn't have to know. Um, I, I think that was really weird. And, oh, yes, of course, towards the end, when he's assuming the role of one of the guards, he's, he's going through all this stuff about changing sides and the doctor's thought process with that and, and articulating it through the doctor's thoughts and uh, I think a few lines of dialogue, too, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just it's kind of dumb. He reveal, he's revealing too much. I mean, of course, there's, there's things you can't do in, in prose in a novel that you can, you know, little tricks to surprise the audience, like reveal the doctor's scarf trailing behind him. Of course, we knew that was what's going on, but still, some little kids may not have gotten that. And, you know, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, George Spenton, uh, was it? How did do you ever hear the, uh, what is it, the John Nathan Turner Diaries, the audio? He referred no. to, he, oh, he referred to George Spenton Foster as, George Spenton, like uh, I, I think he, I think he alluded that they, they, they all referred to him that way because he was a bit loony. That is a, not a detail that I recall from the Richard Marson book. No, no, but I, I don't know if they, they talked to, uh, uh, talked about Spencer in that uh, Spenton Foster in that book. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, you should give those. A, I can, I can send those to you. I got you know those are they're a series of small audio files. He does like basically almost per story. Not a lot of them. I mean, he doesn't say much, but there's some gems in there and some fun stuff. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I just think some of the the choices he does with the doctor are just awful. Just really, really, really tell, terrible for the characters. I mean, ear trumpet. I mean, did Hartnell's doctor even use an ear trumpet ever? I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's silly. That's silly. And, oh, and he does a terrible thing. You know, I told you like the, the preposterous, whatever it is uh, of, of, of the whole plot of why not just sell the Jethric and all that kind of thing. They're carrying this thing around that has you know, super energy in it. It's like, probably giving him cancer or something too but um he does a thing uh when during the scringstone scene when garen first uh when when garen summons unstoff as one of the guards one of the shreves right yes in the novel he says he, that garen is surprised to see that unstoff is dressed up as the shreve he didn't even know that was him which is totally stupid because that's part of the con that it validates the entire part. Yes. That's the, that's, the, that's the classic element of a long con. Yes. You know that your inside man is the inside. You're not surprised when your inside man shows up. Yeah. He uh, granted, yes, he's rightly annoyed that he tried the little extra bit to get a little extra money out of the out of the map that his daddy had, you know, whatever it was. But, but, but he knew it was unstoffed back there. So... But Mara has him surprised at that. Flabbergasted, I believe, is the word he used. Which is just which is, which is a good, it's a good word. It's a good it's a funny word when you're reading this book at eleven or twelve. I get it, but at the same time, it totally busts, you know, an important element of the story. And something else on television, Romana's character is just out of the academy. She's naive. She actually falls for the doctor's comment about unstuff having an open, honest face that element of Romana's characterization is taken away from the book. And what that does is make the scene not funny. So while the scringe stone scene is one of my, try saying that five times fast at home, kids, scringe stone scene. Scringe stone. It's a great 
great scene, but in the book, it's just there, and it's not as funny and charming as, as it is on television. So you have to wonder why Ian Martyr toned down. Either the scene wasn't very funny and the actors brought it to life, or Martyr said, this scene is funny, but it doesn't match the tone of the story that I want to tell, so I'm going to cut out some of the lines to make it less amusing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean... I would give the novel if I'm going to grade it a B because I, that's the thing about these things, right? You have to, there's a lot of ways to evaluate them. You value them against the story itself, which I just kind of did in a lot of ways, but then narratively it doesn't make sense either. Some of the things he does, like I said, with the, uh, you know, with him being flabbergasted and on stuff, it it works better anyways, but that's knowledge I have because I've seen the story umpteen times and I, and I do like it better every time I see it. Um, but, uh, although it's just so much of it doesn't make sense. I mean, the whole thing about the planet being so isolated and they're a class three planet or whatever it is, and they don't know about other worlds, the whole beautiful Binro scene, all that kind of stuff. The first thing you see when, um, uh, uh, Garen is telling on stuff that, oh, the graph vine decay, as he pronounced it, the graph vine decay is, uh, is landing you hear this the roar of his spaceship in the background i mean isn't anyone seeing or hearing this thing i mean where's that coming from the north no i mean they don't even have that technology it's just it's just so dumb and ian martyr changes it to the graph of indica ka he changes the spelling yeah that i don't understand either i mean maybe just wanted people to understand how to pronounce it at least at least i don't know i i uh, that's just, that's neither here than there. It didn't bother me that much. I mean, it is a lot of little touches that, I mean, I think he changed the, the, uh, the guardians drink to green. I know it was Amber, but it was green in the television show, you know? Uh, so here's the page 51. The Shreve raised his head. It was unstuff. Garen was flabbergasted. He took mm-hmm. several seconds to conquer his shock and surprise, glaring at unstuff with his back to the others. And then a few paragraphs down. For some time, Garen could only stare at his grinning young associate in silent disbelief. Then he recovered himself enough to say that no doubt the stone was pretty common on the planet. Unstoff said nothing. Garen glanced at the graph Vindaka and Shalak, and then turned back to the Shreve with a stirring motion of his podgy hands. That's podgy, P-O-D-G-Y. Yep. So you're right. It doesn't make any sense in universe for Garen to be surprised that <laughs> this element of his con is happening as it would have been planned. I just think, you know, given what he did with the doctor and Mars relationship by extending some of the, the bitchiness between them, I, 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 maybe he's a kind of guy who just likes confrontation and kind of thinks that's humorous. I mean, he, man, he'd love reality TV these days, wouldn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. He would have loved the uh, in a, in a real housewife sense or a uh, uh, certain um, NBC reality show about young students trying to get a job with a uh, famous New York businessman and getting fired every week. Yeah, no, I mean, look at I, I I I'm guilty of doing one of those shows back in the day. I did a show called American Chopper um in orange county uh excuse me orange county new york and father and son going at it but the thing of it is that was 100 percent real man now there is a famous meme i think from american chopper the two guys that are yelling at each other that has been repurposed a gazillion times and i use that with precision gazillion that was you 
No, I did. I didn't make it up. Uh, I didn't make the meme up. But yeah, I didn't do that episode either. I already left the show at that time. Uh, oh, wow. That's that was the scene where they actually split up. He, they, uh, Junior quit and he opened his own bike shop um, down the street. But no, yeah, I I did I I did one season of that show, I, and it keeps coming back. Uh, but uh, anyways, yeah, um, those reality shows make for great memes because Real Housewives has also spawned uh, the other half a meme with a cat. I've seen that meme a thousand times, but I've not seen a single frame of that show. I have no idea. I don't watch that kind of TV. So the um, screaming woman half, I believe is from the real housewives of Beverly Hills. And the cat is from a different meme altogether, but put oh. together, the two memes became one unified glorious whole. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, uh, there's some good ones of that. Uh, and there's some really good ones, uh, of, uh, Paul and, Paul and Paul Jr. and God, I've seen I've seen ones that were I had to actually look up some terms. There was one from Australia, and they were talking about um, having bickies in your bowl. And I was like, "What the hell's a bicky? I guess it's a biscuit, a dog biscuit, or something." Anyways, but yeah. Anyway, I will say one more thing about this book that can be construed as a criticism, and then I'm going to rush to the book's defense because this is a fair-minded show. And I like the book more than I'm saying. So the one more thing that I'll say is a critique. Remember the early Simpsons episode where they finally make Itchy and Scratchy the movie and Bart's behavior is so bad that Homer forbids him to ever see Itchy and Scratchy the movie. No, sure. So Bart tries to do the next best thing. And this was a very 80s, early 90s thing. If you couldn't see the movie, you would buy the novelization. Mm-hmm. And back then, every movie had a novelization. There was a novelization of Superman 3. Ian Martyr, as we mentioned last time, did the novelization of Splash. There were novelizations of Gremlins. There was even a novelization in the early 90s of Francis Ford Coppola's movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Think about mm-hmm. the chutzpah that is involved in doing a novelization of a movie that is based on one of the most famous books of all time. And you can imagine some middle school kid who needs to buy a copy of, of uh, Dracula and ends up buying the novelization of the movie rather than the Bram Stoker original and turns in <laughs> the wrong book report for school. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, no, there, there's a novelization for all those movies. I mean, just ask Alan Dean Foster. He did half of them. Including the original Star Wars. Y- yep. Yep. He did Alien, I think. And he did... Uh... And I think he also wrote, without credit, the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, for which Gene Roddenberry got yeah, sole right. author credit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The man who wrote the worst episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Simpsons universe, the novelization of Itchy and Scratchy, the movie, is written by Norman Mailer. So there's this cutaway oh, show of Bart right. sitting on a bench at school reading a, hard, a big 700-page hardcover, Itchy and Scratchy, the movie, the novel by Norman Mailer. And Bart gets halfway through and shakes his head and goes, it's not the same, and tosses it in a garbage can. And the book is so heavy that it compresses all the garbage to the bottom of the barrel. Very <laughs> funny psychag, very funny Norman Mailer joke. For me, this book is Itchy and Scratchy, the movie, the novel by Norman Mailer. It is a very dense, atmospheric book for mm-hmm. a story that it is a gorgeously shot story with all the candles and the underground setting, and it does the best that it can to have an entirely studio-bound icy planet with caverns and catacombs and candles and monsters and and heretics. 
so that's my criticism. This is the wrong book for the right story. However, let's talk about why this book is still good. Ian Martyr was a phenomenal writer. This is his third novelization. He did The Ark in Space, which is a very graphic, violent book, and it reimagines the Wirren with special effects that could not possibly have been achieved in studio by Rodney Bennett in 1974. He reimagines the Wirren as body horror. It is a great book, and yes, the book novelization came out before Alien the movie. He then did the novelization of Sontaran Experiment, which I covered on this show with our mutual friend Bill Evenson. And he just goes to town on the violent nature of the Sontaran's eponymous experiments. And that is a very, very Lovecraftian book. And there's even a reference to the uh, legend of the, uh, of the Golem of Prague. Oh. This story as well gets the full Ian Martyr treatment. He filters the story through the five senses, right? So you know what this place smells like. You know what the air tastes like. You see, and there's a lot of deaths. There's like five named characters killed in part four of this story. It's a very satisfyingly gory Robert Holmes finale, almost in the same league as part four of Caves of Androzani. So this is Robert Holmes doing what he does best, putting a bunch of characters together and then killing them in increasingly cynical ways. That's one of the things we love about Robert Holmes. Ian Martyr leans into that and he makes each death much more graphic. I will talk about this on the back half of the show when I do my script, which I'm in the process of writing now. The death of Binro is much more violent than on television. The death of the Seeker, who we haven't talked about, but she is one of my favorite characters of all time. The death of the Seeker is hideous and grotesque and graphic, and you were no matter how loco and la cabeza George Spenton Foster may have been, he would never have filmed it the way that Ian Martyr imagines it for the novelization. Well, the graph does shoot her in the face. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty bad. But yeah, but the, the, I noticed the, the, the entire mistreatment of her. They, they, they're shoving her down the catacombs. I mean, the way he writes how they treat her in general. And then, of course, the end, like you mentioned, how they kill her is gr- crazy. But I just thought, you know, he, you know, I guess Martyr really had a penchant for being more graphic and violent anyways in all these novels that he did. I haven't read all of them, of course. Have you read The Invasion? No, but uh, I I have read, I remember buying Doctor Who magazine and reading the review of it in that when it first published. And I was like, holy mackerel. That's about a year away on this show, and that's going to be a bumper episode for me. But yes, the way that General Rutledge is killed in the invasion, the novelization, because it happens off screen on television, it is probably the most infamous passage of any martyr novelization. He did almost 10 of them. Yeah, for for some reason, uh, I think the, I don't know if it was that review, but they, they, they said because he wrote another Cyberman one, right? Uh, he did uh, Earthshock, of course. Yeah, I, did he make that one really gory, right? Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, I still remember this from when I was a kid. He actually describes what the Cyberman's breath smells like. Mm-hmm. I guess the rumor is like he just hated the Cybermen because they had no facial expressions and he couldn't write to that, so he just made it freaking gory. And he ended up doing two Cyberman yeah. novelizations, yeah. Yeah. 
And the fact that he died so young, we could have gotten him writing for the new adventures in the 1990s, which certainly uh, played into the graphic violence trope quite a bit. He could conceivably have pitched a script for RTD, because you know that RTD, as a novelizations fan, would have been a big fan of Ian Martyr's books. The fact that he died at such a young age is pretty criminal. Yeah, no, I mean, he did a lot. You know, He, he wrote Harry Sullivan's War as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. Are you going to be doing those uh, companion books? Yes, I am. Some of those have been claimed already, but give me a shout out after we finish recording and I'll see if I have any left for you. I'm not sure I want to do those. <laughs> I got enough coming up. <laughs> I'll be honest. I've never read them. I, I, I own no. all three. I bought them all at Galley over the last few years, but I wasn't buying them when they came out because they weren't based on TV episodes. Right. And so I'm told that Canine and Company by Terrence Dudley is one of the worst books ever written. I haven't read it myself. I'm just passing on what I heard on another podcast in my network. Um, I have heard awful things about Turlo and the Earthling Dilemma. Oh, I've yeah. only read the epilogue. I've only read the prologue to that, where the villain is Margaret Thatcher's name spelled backwards. Oh boy! Which is funny, but it's not necessarily the basis for an entire book. And yeah. I'm told that Harry Sullivan's War is one of the best books ever written. But again, I yeah. own it as of a couple of years ago. Bought it from Dale Santos at Galley. Have never read it. So I will be reading those for the first time when they come up on the show. And that's probably going to be more than a year from now because those come out like 85, 86, 87. And here I am still in 1979. Even yeah. for a weekly show, that's a long way off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, as a novel itself, like I said, we we have different ways we critique these things versus what we saw on television and as a novel itself. You know, it's hard not to look at what you know so well in the show as you know as much as i dislike this serial i i think I, I enjoy it more every time i see it i remember when i was for my quote-unquote pilgrimage as you said when i was doing the, the 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 dvd range it just so happened uh uh i, I was gonna watch this story right before a galley and uh you know warren fry right yeah we're facebook friends i met him i met, I met him at galley actually several years ago very nice guy yeah well, yeah, it was well to the run up a galley. I don't know, seven years ago, six years ago. I can't remember when it was. Uh, I was set to watch this, and Warren was staying at my house for four nights or so before galley because he wanted to hang out in L.A. and do stuff. But uh, we watched this thing in one night, and we both dozed off. And and but but you know, we both agreed though. We liked oddly enough. I mean, there's that stereotypical thing about episode threes and four part Doctor Who serials and how they're just filler. I think it's probably the anti Doctor Who story where the episode three might be the best episode. It just, it seems to pick up a little bit in my, in my book. And it's also the one where the doctor says he enjoys being locked up because he'd much rather hear Garen's war stories than be involved in the plot. Yes. Yes. So that's Robert Holmes finding a way. Robert Holmes as a writer put a lot of effort into salvaging part three, like deadly assassin part three, Episode three of Deadly Assassin inverts the entire part three trope because mm. he puts the story in a new setting in virtual reality. And it's his mm. whole episode long chase sequence. And David Maloney directs the heck out of it. So that's Robert Holmes doing his best to salvage part three. So he he knew that there was a part three problem structurally. and He was always trying to solve it. That's another point in Robert Holmes's defense. Yeah, isn't that though where we get Binro as well, and that whole that whole thing? It's like is a new character involved all of a sudden that 
I think he's he's introduced introduced in three or maybe it's episode two. I, I think it's remember. three. And for such a cynical writer yeah. as Holmes, that's really heartwarming stuff. We haven't, apart from my haiku, we haven't talked much about Binro either. But he's oh, another well, yeah. big selling point to this story. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it, it is a bit of a tangent. But, you know, again, it goes to, all right, so even him in the catacombs probably should have heard those spaceships land right before, you know, <laughs> he met uh, Unstuff. But, uh, I mean, I, you know, it, it's just that whole, the world isn't quite believable to me that they're so isolated. There's, as they say, it's a, the planet is strategic, uh, you know, since it's so close to so many things. And they're also protected. Uh, by the Empire, supposedly. So they have no contact with the Empire. The Empire has no dealings with them. I mean, that just seems, you know, unlikely for an Empire. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Especially if it's a strategic planet. Anyways, I, I digress. A lot of stuff doesn't make sense. That's the other thing. I listen to these other Doctor Who podcasts that just tear this stuff apart, tear these scripts apart. And I, and I say that sometimes I scream at my damn iPods, like, it's just a kid's show, you know? So... You gotta you, you you gotta let some things just go, you know. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do hate watches. I get critical at times, but I try and be fair about it. This is not a hate watch show. No. So I look for shows that celebrate these more obscure or less beloved corners of Doctor Who. And even though I didn't get it when I was eleven, I am now a Rebos Operation fan, and I will defend the story which is why I'm disappointed that the novelization is the Norman Mailer take on it rather than the funny, witty heist movie mm -hmm. caper take. You know, the interesting thing is, and not that it matters much in these novels, uh, it seems that Martyr really dilutes the cliffhangers. Not that these cliffhangers were great, but, you know, for instance, the first episode cliffhanger where the doctors can be crushed by the door. Yes, Shrivenzal lives. Um, it doesn't end there, and there's just like more dialogue between, you know, the guards who are who are, who are moving it and all that kind of stuff. And you know, then he, you know, then he said he got out because of what was it? Uh, Tibetan breathing exercises. I don't think that was in the show, was it? The the whole Tibetan breathing exercise bit. He added that. So I do I do like that because that's part of the Doctor's character, albeit more of the you know, we see more of that in, you know, the third doctor's character, but it's still part of the doctor. So I, I don't mind touches like that necessarily, but I do think he does dilute some drama on occasion uh, in, in this novel. And I will come back after the jump and I will read out my review. Of course, I've already given much of it away, but I'll read out my review with audio clips from the story of the Rebos operation. The Ian Martyr novelization. Barsky, thank you again for joining me. We pretty much killed it today. We talked Harlan Ellison. We talked Ian Martyr. We talked Tom Baker. We talked JNT. And we celebrated some poetry. Yeah, it's all good stuff. I really appreciate it, Jason. And, and, and you know what? I'll tell you this, though. I mean, again, why I picked this book is I, I've had a, a troubled history, if you will, with this story. And why, <laughs> I want, why I wanted to read it is to see if I can glean more from it and appreciate it more than I have. You know what I do for these for these podcasts of yours. I I'll watch the story again. I'll read the book and then I'll watch the story again. And I I always find more in the story and I do appreciate it more. And, I, and I'm actually looking forward to seeing it again. So I guess I, I I certainly like it a lot more than I did when I was 13 years old, which is a good thing. And there you have it. <clears throat> we are going to have you back on real soon. I will tell you 
after we finish recording, which is the next story that you have volunteered for, but it is going to be a good one. You're going to be covering all seven classic series doctors on this show. This is your second and probably final Tom Baker. This is my third Tom Baker. This is my third. It is. Oh, that's right. Because we did Revenge of the Cybermen. That's right. That's right. Speaking about conventional fan wisdom. See, I love that. And it seems like nobody. I was surprised when I started getting into fandom and everybody hates that. I love that. I love that episode. uh, Serial. Again, we had. I really. And it was my first Cyberman story. So I love Revenge of the Cybermen. And I would direct all of my listeners, my newer listeners, back to episode 22. Barsky's first appearance on the show where we love Revenge of the Cybermen. And I will just confirm without saying which book it is, the next time that you are scheduled is a third Doctor novelization. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on John Pertwee. Oh, I I love that serial. It's one of my all-time favorites. Probably my top three. I am moderating a Pertwee panel at Who this coming weekend. So I will mm. definitely bear that in mind. One of my favorite stories, too. Have a good night, my man. Oh, thank you so much again, Jason. I really appreciate it. Doctor Who and the Rebos Operation. Written by Ian Martyr. Televised as the Rebos Operation. Teleplay by Robert Holmes. Televised in September 1978. Published in December 1979. Reluctantly canceling his well-earned holiday, the Doctor sets off in the TARDIS to trace and reassemble the six segments of the key to time on which the stability of the entire universe depends. Assisted by the argumentative Ramana Devaratnalunder and K-9, he lands on the planet Rebos in search of the first segment and finds himself entangled in the machinations of two sinister strangers, Garen and the Graf Vindicay. Who are they? Is Garen simply a shady confidence trickster, dealing in interplanetary real estate? Is the Graf Vindicay just a power-crazed exile bent on revenge? Or are they both really agents of the Black Guardian, intent upon seizing the precious key, in order to throw the universe into eternal chaos, risking his life within the monster-infested catacombs of Rebos, the Doctor has to use all his wit and ingenuity to find out. Before I even open my copy of the Rebos Operation novelization, I'm thrown by the Target logo. It's different. Changed. It's not the familiar blue-yellow-red bullseye, but rather a monochrome line drawing. I'm seeing that new logo about five years too early, out of sequence. I polled the Doctor Who Target Facebook group, and the answer is that this new logo debuted on the novelization of Warriors of the Deep, which came out in paperback in August 1984, nearly five years' worth of books in the future, for us. The answer is that I'm reading the 1984 reprint of the Rebos book, so that must have come out late in the year. I've read many, many other 1984-issue reprint copies of the earlier books of this podcast. Remember, we're going in publication order. And I am up to book 52 in that order. And this is the first of those 52 books to sport the new logo, which I find a disappointing logo, as Barsky and I discussed earlier in the program, but which lasted for most of the rest of the Target run. Fortunately, the old logo is back on the new Targets for when we finally get to those. 
to recap my discussion with Varsky. And that definitely got spirited, didn't it? <laughs> you should see our text messages, but the Rebos operation on TV is a genuinely funny story. And I've come to love it over the years. Yes, the plot is paper thin. It's a crime caper. The con man and his junior operative trying to swindle a war criminal. And that's it. That's the plot. But it's shockingly mature, with humor arising organically from the characters, rather than from, as was common during the Graham Williams era, Tom Baker fondling the TARDIS console or going off script. It's got some moments of real pathos and genuine bits of warmth out of Robert Holmes' often caustic heart and pen. The Graf Vindicae is a bloodthirsty emperor deposed by his own people, yes, and the great Paul Seed plays him progressively crazier as the story goes on. But Seed is mesmerizing to watch, and his long-suffering general Shalak's loyalty is a delight. Garen and Unstaff are each wonderful in their own ways, the grizzled conman and his somewhat naive inside man, and of course the doctor and Romana and Canine, their own comic trio. What did Barsky say? Three Holmesy and double acts? In the same story? For such a funny adventure, who's going to novelize this thing? I love his earlier books, and will love most of his later books, but Ian Martyr is not the obvious choice for this one tale. Martyr's stock in trade is graphic violence, sensual imagery, and over-the-top gore. He was, to be fair, an in-house target dependable. He adapted... First, two stories that he acted in himself, Ark in Space and Santaran Experiment, both of which suited his style. And then he adapted a range of other books to come from different eras, chronologically in story order from the Reign of Terror all the way up to Earthshock. However, Rebo's Operation is really the only full-on comedy he adapted, and his style is an odd fit for such a comedy. Now granted, there are five distinct death scenes in Part 4 of Rebos, making for a satisfyingly bloody finale. One of the Shreve guards, poor Binro the heretic, Shalak, our loyal to the last general, the seeker, and then the Graf himself. Holmes, an incredibly skilled writer, but of course if you listen to this podcast, you knew that already, milks different emotions out of each of these deaths. But Martyr is so busy reveling in the gore that he turns into a product that's just not as side-splittingly funny as the original. The focus becomes on the mechanics of death rather than on the story. Rather than on the story. Well, looking back on that last sentence, I'm not sure I'm expressing what I mean, but part four of Rebos is told at a frenetic pace, and the book loses momentum by casting long, lingering looks at corpses whose blood boils away in the cold winter air, rather than focusing on the heist caper. I don't know how much of this may have to do with Martyr adapting the rehearsal scripts, rather than the final televised product. A lot of the best lines on TV are missing from the book. Comic byplay between Garen and Unstoff, or Garen and the Doctor, or the Doctor and Romana, is just not here. I know for a fact that Martyr was working from an older draft. He still calls the Tracer the Locator Muter Core, a name planned but dropped long before the cameras started rolling. But we're also missing some of the funnier lines from the Stone scene, or the Doctor and Garen's exchange in Part 3 about the Sydney Opera House, or the Doctor's telling Romana after a near-death experience in Part 4, just stay with me and you'll get a lot nearer. Tom Baker, as we know, brought an almost improv attitude 
to the TV studio during the Graham Williams era, and as such, I'll have to assume that some of the best and most inspired lines in Rebo's operation weren't in Robert Holmes' script, but rather devised in rehearsal, and thus they're not in the book either, which is likely based on the draft script that began rehearsal. Oh, ah, sir, ah, that I do, that I do. That be what we call scringstone, sir. Scringstone? Oh, how interesting. Uh, you hangs a bit of that around your neck and you won't never suffer from the scringes, no matter how cold it be. You'll just stay as supple and as fresh as a little old babbit in the sun time, sir. And that be a proven fact. Oh, really? Oh, there's just one more thing. It's uh, fairly common around these parts, I suppose. Common, sir? Yes. There's a lot of it about, isn't there? Oh, no, sir. No, 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 I wouldn't say that. Well, there used to be, you see. But, well, then they lost the secret of the mind, sir. Well, that was three ice times ago. What do you mean, lost the secret? Lost the secret of where it be, sir. Well, what they reckon is that one ice time there was this glacier, you see, and it moved all the rocks about. Well, ever since then, they've been a-searching and a-searching for that old mine, but... Well, I don't reckon as hell they'll ever find it now, sir. Even if the entrance has disappeared, surely they know the area to search. Well, the trouble is, sir, all the old miners is dead now. And there ain't be nothing written down in writing, well, because there weren't no scholars in them days. All, all they do know, sir, is it that uh, it's up in the granite mountains. Oh, pay no heed to him. <laughs> One knows how these fellows exaggerate. Oh, no, sir, no, 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 I know what I'm talking about. You see, my... My poor old dad spent his life for searching for that scringstone mine, and they reckon as how he found it in the end, just before he died. Where? Uh, where uh, they found him out in the tundra, sir. Uh, frozen stiff, his poor old pickaxe beside him, and that there bit of scringstone in his pocket. And that be as true as I'm stood standing here, sir. The scringe stone scene in the book is between pages 51 through 53. Unstoff only has about half the dialogue in the book. The TV scene sounds as if it's been improvised a little bit, letting Nigel Plaskett go off on a run in rehearsal, riffing on the original lines, and then retaining the best editions for the studio day. It's funny in the book, it's amusing, Let's say that, amusing, but it does rely heavily on Plaskett's put-on accent, which Martyr helpfully identifies as, quote, a mixture of East Eng and Knightsbridge, which, I confess, as a Brooklyn kid, I'm a bit lost. Anyway, the scene's better on television, and you just heard why. There's still humor to be had in print, but Garen's character is a much less charming rogue in the novelization, and more of a cad. On TV, he gets the line about the struggle with his conscience, but says, fortunately, I won. In the book, however, he says, unfortunately, which inverts the meaning of the line. And Mary Tam had made a wry observation in part four on TV about having dropped the tracer, dot, 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 into Garen's hand after he tried to steal it. But that's not in the book either. Instead, Martyr uses his favorite literary device, the five senses, to tell us what Rebos looks like, what the monsters smell like, and what sounds and sensations the characters experience. This makes the book visceral, but also at times nauseating. Unstoff at one point admires, quote, the massively bulging muscles of a half-naked Shreve guard. 
canine's comedy nose laser on TV is used to more devastating effect, quote, like three monstrous puppets, the stun guards slid clumsily down the rough woodwork into a tangled heap. Martyr's descriptions of the set does far surpass the BBC's 1978 vintage inflationary budget. Barsky pinpointed this as a reason why he didn't like the story the first time he saw it. The novelization certainly addresses those complaints. Quote, As canines' radio probe lit up the gnarled and fissured tunnel walls with their glossy, fantastically twisted surfaces resembling the fossilized remains of creatures long extinct, nightmarish sounds began to echo in the gloomy depths ahead as the hungry Shrivenzals stirred from their lairs to hunt for food. The cheesy Shrivenzal prop also gets a dignity that the TV production could not afford. Quote, from Martyr, again, the Shrivenzal lashed the cavern floor, and Unstoff caught a momentary glimpse of its colossal armored bulk in the light of the thick showers of sparks thrown up by the hail of jagged flints and boulders flying in all directions. And oh my goodness, are the deaths so much gorier in the book. On TV, Binro died from a poorly drawn laser beam, but here the photon bolts, quote, blew away almost the whole of one side of Binro's frail body. <laughs> Heavens to Betsy. The Shrivenzal's hide melts under laser fire, even as it eats two and three Levithian guards at a time. Sharlak dies, quote, welling blood out of his mouth, end quote. The Seeker lives a little bit longer than she does on TV. She does not bleed when stabbed, and finally dies a much more gruesome death at the mouth of a cannon. Here's an excerpt from the text, reading across pages 134 and 136. Quote, the graph raised the daggers aloft, in imitation of the Seeker's ritualistic gestures with her bones. What is the prophecy? he cried hysterically. All but one doomed to die? The grinning hag nodded gleefully. Then die, he shrieked, plunging the knives deep into the Seeker's scrawny body. The doctor looked on uneasily, as the gaping wounds showed not the slightest trace of bleeding. Flourishing her bones defiantly, the Seeker uttered a spine-chilling cackle and stumbled wildly away towards the Hall of the Dead. And then, on page 136, just as the Shreve captain thrust the flaring brand into the touchhole of the massive cannon, the Seeker dragged herself into the entrance to the echoing necropolis from the catacombs. The captain shielded his face and stared in horror between his fingers as the old woman lurched to a stop in front of the mighty gun. Flinging up her fragile arms, she released the sacred bones so that they smashed into the tunnel roof as the powder sizzled in the fuse hole. The brittle fragments rattled around her as she stared into the gaping muzzle of the cannon. All but one, she shrieked. With a stunning roar, the cannon fired, its massive bulk hurled backwards by the recoil. The seeker disappeared in the fireball of rock and shrapnel, which tore into the tunnel and instantly destroyed the only entrance to the catacombs with a noise like thunder. In the long silence which followed, the captain and his shreves stood in the smoke-filled mausoleum, their heads bowed in tribute to their dead priestess. The editing is sometimes weak. In the Part 4 material, Romana faints in one paragraph, and then walks through a tunnel opening in the very next paragraph. On the whole, though, this is a shockingly raw and visceral book. 
One senses that Martyr is taking the material way too seriously, applying body horror to what was basically a semi-dark comedy about a lovably roguish con man and his nearly honest sidekick. The blood, the gore, and the horror prove Martyr's indisputable talents, but unfortunately, just don't do this particular script the justice it deserves. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we are taking a week off from the Target books, but we are not taking a week off from the podcast. We have finished 1979, and when we resume with the books in two weeks, we will be in the 1980s, starting with the very first 1980 novelization. But next week will be a bonus episode. I am about to head out to L.I. Who for the weekend. I hope to come back with some interviews, uh, some stories, and of course, in between this listen and the very next time that we meet, we will have passed Doctor Who's 59th anniversary. So we'll be talking a little bit, again, about happy birthday to Doctor Who, the next time that we reconvene, in an episode that will air next Sunday after American Thanksgiving. That will be next time on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for joining me on the Doctor Who Literature podcast. Special thanks to my special guest, David Barsky. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter, which, as I record this bit about two days before the episode is released, I'm not quite positive that Twitter is going to exist anymore, but in the event that it is, you can find me at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, my old tweets about the entire series under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage, my current Twilight Zone watch-through under hashtag TZ Pilgrimage, and again, this is contingent on Elon Musk not burning the place down, which appears to be happening before our very eyes in slow motion on this 18th of Friday, 2022. And you can also find me on email at Doctor Who Literature. That's drwholiterature at gmail.com, which right now is a much more stable platform than Twitter. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions wherever you choose to find me. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.